Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Well, welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I am Kyle Brost, and today we have with us Josh Steinley, who's going to uh, talk a little bit about his business um, and his experiences in, in his personal life and leadership and where he's made some really good decisions, um, as well as some that maybe weren't so good. And we'll explore what led to those and how we can learn from them. So welcome, Josh. Do you mind uh, just giving us a quick introduction to who you are and, and what you're up to? Sure thing. Thanks, Kyle, for having me on. So yeah, Josh Daimley. I'm based in Shenzhen, China. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, though. I'm not Chinese. I don't speak Chinese, although I'm trying to learn right now. But uh, I run a marketing agency called MWI, and we have offices in the US and Hong Kong and Singapore and the UK. And now we're opening an office here in China. So I get to be over here having this fun adventure. And I started my business in 1999 and basically failed my way forward to 2013. The business did well enough to keep me doing it, but never really succeeded. And then in 2013, two things changed. I brought on a partner who complimented a weakness I had, which was sales. And I also got the opportunity to write for Forbes magazine, which led to all sorts of doors opening, writing for 20 other publications and doing a TEDx talk and a book deal and all sorts of other stuff. And so between all the attention that was generated from my writing and speaking, and then my partner, who is great at business development, we grew our agency and it became super successful, like I'd wanted it to all those years. Wow. Awesome. Um, so you said a couple of things there that we could probably dive into. Uh, I mean, the fact that you're living in, in China is really cool to me. It's, it's just a totally different environment that I'm unfamiliar with. What's that like? It's amazing. I love it. I mean, there are pros and cons. Uh, Walmart here is different than the Walmart in the U.S. And so it's, uh, I mean, there's like live butchering of turtles and stuff going on in the back and oh, it's wow. crazy, but, and they don't have the same stuff we have in the U.S. So I miss the U.S. Walmart. I miss Amazon Prime shipping, although we've got this thing called Taobao over here. That's pretty cool. Um, and obviously their language challenges and their cultural differences, but overall it's just been an amazing experience to be here and I've loved it and I could live here the rest of my life, although that's not the plan, but I love it that much. It's just been fantastic and great experience for my kids, for my family as well. That's really cool. I can, I can only imagine the kind of experience and I'm sure it's broadening, um, how you approach business and life just by being able to see such a different culture and be embedded in it. Yeah, I tell everybody I can that they should come to China for just a few weeks at least to just see what it's like because it's so eye-opening. I tell all my friends this. I'm like, you got to come here. You got to see what's going on here. And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then they come and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Like now I know what you were talking about. It's just the scale and the speed at which things are happening here is just amazing. They've got a lot of problems too, but there are a lot of interesting things, good things that are happening here. Sure. That's really cool. 
Um, so in your, your introduction, you said a couple of things that I, I'm really curious to hear your perspective on. Um, you used the term fail forward, um, and then you also talked about bringing on a partner. So let's, let's start with this idea of failing forward. I, I think I've, you know, I've heard that before. I think we've talked about it in different groups. Um, what does that mean to fail forward? Well, for me, what it means is you're moving forward. I mean, you're succeeding enough that you keep moving forward and you stay alive, but it just feels like failure all the time. It feels like you're progressing from one failure to another. So with my business, it just every time, every month I could look back and say, wow, I've learned so much. I mean, look where I am today compared to where I was just one month ago. And so I always had that good feeling of feeling like, wow, I'm learning so much and I'm progressing and there are all these lessons that I'm getting under my belt. And yet I went four years without paying myself a dime from the business. I mean, I didn't take a paycheck for four years. I was living off my wife's paycheck and that's not success. That's failure. And people always ask, well, why did you do that? I mean, why would you put up with that for four years of not getting paid? And the answer is, it was success was always just around the corner. It just seemed like, oh, next month, it's all going to work out. And then the next month would come and it wouldn't work out, but it would work out well enough that it was like, well, I'm still alive. And next month, it's really going to work out. I mean, it was literally that type of situation for four years until I figured out, you know what, this isn't working out and it's not going to work out next month. And I've really got to make some big changes here because whatever I've been doing, whatever I've been changing, yeah, I'm learning a lot, but it is not working out. So what did it take to get, I mean, four years, what did it take to get to that point where you finally said, man, next month isn't going to be the month, you know, it hasn't been the month for, you know, whatever it is, 48 months, next month's not going to be the month. What, what, created that? What finally led to you saying, this just isn't working? I just reached the end of my rope. I gave up. I was burning out. I was super stressed out. I was depressed. I was fat. I mean, I had also, I was had health problems. I was working 100 hour weeks because in my mind, I thought, well, if it's not working out, then I need to work harder. And so I just spent more and more and more time working on the business, figuring this is the thing I can do. I mean, I've got to give it my all. And if I'm awake or I can be awake, I need to be working more. Mm. And I just realized like, no, this isn't working. I mean, if I can't get this done with a hundred hours a week for years, then something's wrong. And I felt like I had tried everything in my business, every form of marketing, advertising, just everything. And it just wasn't growing. And finally I sat down one night with, uh, I was there late at the office as usual, and my office assistant was there, Mark Browning. He's a great friend of mine, and he was kind of like my therapist. And so I sat there, and I was just like, Mark, I've tried everything. Like, this isn't working, but I just can't throw in the towel. I can't give up. I don't know how to give up, but this is not working, and there's nothing else I can do. There's literally nothing I can try that I haven't tried. And he's just like, he started giving me some advice, and he made me see that, yeah, there were some things I hadn't tried. And the reason I couldn't see those things is because ego. It was all about my ego. Mm. I was doing things like I had a big office that cost me $5,000 a month with a big sign outside and it was next to the freeway where everyone could see it. And I always told myself, this is great marketing. That's the reason I have this office with the big sign on it is this is great marketing for the business. But if I had to be honest with myself, it wasn't about the marketing. It was all about my ego and about looking like I was this big, successful entrepreneur, which I wasn't. I was failing. I was going into debt. I was on the verge of bankruptcy. 
And yeah. so it wasn't accurate. And once I realized that the only reason I had this office was because of my ego, I was like, well, that's pretty stupid to spend $5,000 a month just to make myself feel good. <laughs> and once I had that clarity, I was like, Jesus, this is stupid. Like, get rid of this office. Boom, $5,000 extra a month. And then it was, well, why do I have these 10 employees? I mean, yeah, I, I like paying people. I like having a business, but the business isn't successful. We can't justify having these 10 people here. Why do I have these 10 people here? And it was the same thing. It was ego. It was being able to tell people I had 10 full-time people working for me. So I put everybody on contract and said, I'm going to a contractor model. I'm moving into my basement. And within two months, I went from accruing 10, 20, $30,000 a month in business debt to paying off 10, 20, $30,000 a month in business debt. I mean, it just turned around that fast once I recognized what my ego was doing to my business and to me. And everything changed from that point on. And all of a sudden, we were paying off debt. We became successful. I started paying myself. My wife was able to quit her job that she hated, that she only kept to support us. And so all sorts of good things happened once I got a hold of my ego and tried to strangle it. Yeah. Well, and that's such a great example because in when we talk about the art of strategic reaction, it is these competing priorities that emotion and ego and pride and life kind of try to interject into our lives. So we have some goal we really, really want. And yet because of exactly what you're saying, things like emotion and pride, we inject other intentions that just aren't ever going to get us there. So, I mean, it's such a great example. You're paying $5,000 for an office that has nothing to do with your business success. It has to do with what you want to be able to say and how you want to be perceived by other people. And so getting past that, those drivers that are really preventing you from, from doing the right things, doing the hard things that, uh, emotionally hard things, but that will actually get you the results you want versus those things that, you know, give you some sort of satisfaction in the moment, maybe over a dinner party and you get to say, you know, oh, I've got this office and, you know, these 10 employees. And yet, guess what? You're going home at night and, you know, you're having those really hard conversations with your your wife about where your finances are and, and how you're going to get to the next level and the sacrifices it's going to take. And so it, it just ends up causing so much more difficulty and challenge because you're not injecting the right kind of actions, the right kind of intentions, uh, it, the ones that will actually produce the results you want. I love that example. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is how the results that you want are hampered by trying to appear that you already have the results. I mean, it was literally my actions were keeping me from attaining what I wanted. And yet my actions were designed to make me feel like I already had it. I mean, it's just, it's ironic, right? I look back and I'm just like, man, what an idiot I was. And yet <laughs> so many of us get sucked into this and I still get sucked into it. I mean, I'm still in a battle against my ego. It's not like I Right. Figured it out all of a sudden. It's it's a constant battle. It'll be a battle I fight to the end of my life, I'm sure. But at least I know who the enemy is now and I've got some experience battling him. Absolutely. Very cool. And so there's another thing you did at that point. So you, you know, you were failing forward, um, kind of making small pieces of progress, learning along the way. Then you have this kind of big shift where you make a lot of probably really challenging and difficult decisions. And one of those you said you brought on a partner. How did you make that decision? How did you know it was the right thing to do? 
This was a tough one for me because I had a partner before and it went bad and I swore I would never have a partner ever again. And when I say went bad, I didn't have a bad partner. I had a good partner before, but it, we were a bad match and really I was the bad partner. That was the real problem. So I had brought on a partner in the early days of my business back in 1999. I brought a guy on that I didn't know well enough. I brought him on too quickly. I didn't know how to manage a partnership back then because I was a college student. I had never run a real business before. I didn't know what I was doing. I just thought I was Mr. Business. And so I was doing all this stuff and making all sorts of mistakes. And then I got burned by it. And after I got burned by it, I blamed the partnership. I blamed that structure and said, I will never have a partner again because partners are bad. And the reason I got into this situation was because I went into a partnership and I shouldn't have. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to show everybody that I'm the smart entrepreneur. And then I didn't get paid for the next four years and proved that, no, I'm not that good of an entrepreneur. And as I didn't get paid and then I was digging myself out of debt, the thought kept coming back, you know, maybe you should bring on a partner again. And it always, I just shut it down. I was like, no, partner's bad. Never again. I'm never having a partner. And it took 10 years for me to get to the point where I was open to the idea of, you know, maybe I should have a partner again. And again, it was my friend, Mark Browning, that same guy. We were in Brazil on a trip together and we, I know we were driving along in this car at night in the state of Hondonia, and we were talking about the business stuff, and I was griping to him again. And he's like, Josh, I know you don't want to hear this, but you really need to bring on a partner. And I was like, dang it, you're right. Like, ugh. And that was that moment where finally I was ready to accept it because I was just so desperate again. And so in 2012, I started looking for a partner. I looked for a whole year. I couldn't find the right person. And then finally, after a year of searching, I found the right person. And this time, because I had done it wrong the first time, at least this time I was able to do it the right way. I brought him on slowly. It was not an immediate thing where I was just like, hey, you want to be my partner? It was, hey, why don't you do some consulting for me? Okay, this is working out. Why don't you work part-time for me? Okay, this is working out. Why don't you work full-time for me? Okay, this is working out. Now, do you want to become my partner? So this guy worked for me for nine, 12 months before he became my partner. And then it worked out great. Then it was awesome. But uh, so, I mean, the failure helped me the second time around, helped things work out. Uh, but it was a tough process for me. I mean, it was 10 years before I was ready to bring on that partner again. Wow. Uh, that does sound like a, a tough process. It sounds like um, one that was iterative, uh, which tends to be something I hear a lot when I'm having these conversations is it, it's not like um, you're jumping right in to the perfect decision or you're you know starting at one point. Um, you're really iterating that process over time. So you're making small adjustments and improvements. So like you pointed out, rather than just bringing a partner on from the beginning and it's this whole new partnership and you launch it formally at the start, you're really taking these small iterative steps that are kind of working you toward that goal of partnership. Um, and, and in many ways, that's what strengthens and creates the foundation for an, an effective partnership as well as an effective business. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you look at what people do out there, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or any famous, successful person. And it's so hard sometimes to understand, like, how did they get there? How did they build this? How did they do all this? And that's the same way I feel when I go and I view a manufacturing facility. I look at these machines that are incredibly complex and I'm like, how did they build this stuff? I mean, who thought up this thing? 
And the thing is, you don't see all the background. You don't see the step-by-step decisions that led from one point to the next point. And those small decisions are usually pretty obvious in the moment. You're just, you're in a situation, you try something, it kicks you in the head and you're like, ouch. And so you go and you try something else and that doesn't work. And you're like, ouch. And then you go do something else and then that works. You're like, okay, that's the right decision. Then it's just a thousand of those decisions push you to the right place. When somebody sees the culmination of those thousand decisions, it looks like a miracle and you look like a genius, but you know, I was just doing what was obvious at the time. And it was just one thing after another that built up to this thing. In my case, I tell people, I just made all the mistakes I could possibly make. And now I just have to do the opposite of everything I've ever done. And then it's easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think we all feel like that at some point, or at least I, I can definitely, uh, appreciate that perspective as well about feeling like I've made all the the wrong decisions and um, just need to do the opposite of what I did for so long. Um, <clears throat> so how, how is business now? I and mean, what's the next step for you at this point? I assume you're not just, just like we've been talking about, you're still in the process of iterating and moving forward. And so how are you doing that right now in real time? So right now, our focus with me and my partner, my partner's Corey Blake. He's the guy that came on that was good at sales and everything, but he's turned out to be this great all-around entrepreneur and just a great leader. And I've turned over most of the business to him because, frankly, he's just better at running it than I ever was. So I brought him on. I've turned over most of the business to him. I focus more on marketing and evangelizing and talking about the business and thought leadership type stuff. And he focuses on sales and just kind of overall leadership and running the show. And then we've got Curtis Quildu, who's our COO, but also basically runs the company and takes care of all of operations and getting all the work done and everything. So we've got this great team of people who are specialized and who know what they're doing. And our main focus right now is growth. Last month or last year in 2017, the focus was on getting all of our well, so 2016 was really a focus on processes and operations and how the company was structured. And we made a lot of progress on that in 2016. In 2017, it was all about profitability. How do we actually make money off of this thing so that we can keep it going and grow and expand? And we fi- really figured that out in 2017. Very helpful book for us was Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. Really changed how we take care of our accounting. It was super helpful. And now in 2018, it's all about growth and expansion. So we're rolling out a model to expand to new areas around the world. And basically, we go in and we try to find an entrepreneur who is really scrappy and a hustler and who is super motivated, but maybe they're just lacking an idea of what they want to do, or maybe they're just a little bit risk averse to go take all the risk themselves. And we say, hey, Let us give you a business in a box. We'll come in. We'll give you an office of MWI. You get all the support. You get the brand. You get all our company history, everything to go market to your local market, wherever you're at. And we're going to provide you with training and tools and back end to get the work done. So you can basically start this business, but you're not starting from scratch. But then you can build it and you can kind of be your local CEO and own that market and have a lot of autonomy and control. So we're going, we're refining this model and we're working on rolling this out in different areas. So that's what we've done in Hong Kong. That was kind of our pilot and it's worked out really well there. We've got a guy there and now he has 
12 people on his staff and it's growing and he controls everything. He runs everything and we just check in on him from time to time. And we're doing that in the UK and we're looking to do that in other areas. So that's our current fun challenge that we've got going on. Well, and, and what are you learning along this process? Um, as you're trying this model, you're rolling it out, you're testing it in different mo- markets. Um, what are some of the key pieces that you're learning along the way? One key is just that it takes more time than you think it's going to take, and there are going to be more challenges than you think there are going to be. So it sounds great, and then you try to go do it, and then it's like you bring somebody in, and they just fall flat on their face, and you're like, oh, come on, like just make this work. And it's all about people. So in Hong Kong, we tried this out with one guy, and he tried it for nine months and just didn't get any traction, just totally failed. And you look at that, and you're like, well, is it the market? Is it our offering? Do we have, you know, what's wrong here? But then we went and hired another guy and he was just incredibly successful. And with, in one year, the business was doing fantastic and everything was going great. And we're just like, okay, it's just all about the person. If we bring on the right guy, it works out. If we bring on the wrong person, it doesn't work out. And so now we know a lot better who to look for and what type of qualities to look for in the people that we bring on. And that's what it's all about is just hiring the right people for us. So, I mean, that's not all it's about. There are other things behind the scenes, sure. but that's that's the make or break thing is finding the right person who's the right fit for the offering that we have. Well, and I, and I would assume that your experience in bringing on a partner at least helps you understand uh, what's going to be a good fit versus what's not going to be a good fit. And then with each of these hires, you learn a little bit more about what's going to be a good fit versus what won't be a good fit. Exactly. After our first failure in Hong Kong, I told my partner, Cora, I was like, we just need to find the Hong Kong version of you. Like, how do we find the (laughs) Hong Kong version of you? And we literally took some of his background that was very specific and said, okay, we're looking for somebody who has summer sales experience going and knocking on doors and selling alarm systems. That was one of the things that my partner had done. And we're like, the trouble is they don't do that in Hong Kong. You can't knock on doors in 40 story high rises. So Uh. we're like, how do we find somebody in Hong Kong who's done this? And we did. We actually found a guy in Hong Kong who had been to the U.S. and did summer sales selling for the same company Corey had. And we're like, man, what are the chances? And then we hired this guy and he turned out awesome. We're like, well, that actually worked. We just need to go everywhere and find our local Corey. And then we've got it. That's funny. Actually, one of the pieces that I really like of that example, and it's a little bit of a tangent, but there's so many times when we come up with an idea and yet we stop ourselves from pursuing it because we're like, there's no way that that's going to happen. There's no way that that's going to uh, you know, pan out that way or that that's even a possibility. And then we don't even try because we've already assumed the outcome. And it's, as you said, you know, how would we even find somebody in Hong Kong that has this kind of experience? And yet, if you just shut it down in that moment, you would have, you know, completely avoided finding this, this great fit. Yeah. And I just got lucky because I happened to be looking at this guy's LinkedIn profile and then I saw, oh, he did summer sales for this company. It was on my mind, but it was like, wow, he's actually done this. Like, and he's here in Hong Kong. I've got to talk to this guy. And I jumped on it and talked to him and we brought him on. But but yeah, I mean, I wasn't I didn't really have hope of finding that person, but I got lucky and happened to find somebody. But I could have done a LinkedIn search and I would have found him right away, maybe a couple months earlier. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so you at one point you wrote a book, right? 
I did, yes. Chief Marketing Officers at Work. And how long ago was that? So I wrote the book mostly in 2015, and then it was published in 2016. Well, I guess it, the writing went into 2016 as well. It was published late in 2016. And the book is 29 interviews with CMOs, chief marketing officers from companies like PayPal, Spotify, Target, Home Depot, and some smaller companies as well. Well, so what did you learn from that experience? It seems like there's this seems like such a big endeavor to write a book, and it, and it's something that I think is becoming a bigger and bigger push because technology is changing and making it more accessible for other people. What did you personally learn from that experience? One thing I learned is that it's hard to write a book. I have so much respect for anybody who's written any book, whatever it is, even if it's a terrible book, because I know how much work goes into putting a book together, even if it's a bad book. Like It is so much work. It's a huge project, and it's really hard to fit it in and make it a priority with everything else that everybody has going on. So if you've written a book, like mad props to you, because I, I understand now like how much work that takes. And... I also learned a lot about the publishing industry, which was fascinating because you go into it and you think, oh, I want to get a book deal. I want to sign up with a traditional publisher and have that credibility. And then once you publish a book with a traditional publisher, you think, wait a second, like, what did they do? They don't market the book. They don't help me write the book. They didn't really edit the book. They, I mean, yeah, they like slapped a cover on it and got it in Amazon, but Amazon can do that. And so anyway... Like I'm super thankful to my publisher for having given me the experience, but having been through the publishing experience, I'm like, man, I'm definitely self-publishing next time because I ended up designing my own cover. I didn't like the one the publisher did. I ended up hiring my own editor because the editor, the publisher gave me messed up the book and like all this stuff. It was a really educational, painful experience, but so rewarding in so many ways. And it was really, for me, because my book is interviews, it's verbatim interviews. I mean, I went out, I interviewed 29 people. There are 29 chapters in the book. Each chapter is an interview and it's question and answer back and forth. That was the format I went to, into with the book. Uh, because it's that type of book, I didn't really write the book per se. I mean, I just interviewed people and then transcribed it and edited and all that. It was still so much work, but it was so rewarding to talk to these people and get their perspectives. And that was just an amazing experience. Very cool. Um, so <clears throat> how do you feel like the book has impacted your, your own business and your own success? It's been a major credibility factor. I didn't really realize this before the book came out, but once you have a book, uh, some people say it's like a business card on steroids. It's once you have a book, people take you seriously in a way that you just can't understand until you have the book out there. And the way it works is like this, like there's an event, let's say that you want to speak at and the event organizer is looking down a list of 10 people deciding who do we want to speak at this event. If you've got a book and you can say that you're a published author, there's just this instant credibility because what happens is the event organizer takes your name as an author and goes back to the boss of the event and says, hey, we've got this guy. I think we should bring him in to speak. And the boss says, well, why should we bring this person in? Well, he wrote this book. And it's like, oh, okay, well, enough said. It's like they don't care if the book's good. They don't necessarily even care what the book is about. It's like, oh, he's a speaker. Oh, he wrote a book? Oh, great. Yeah, if he's got a book, all good. Like there's just this 
instant credibility there. So uh, I've seen this at work with people where I know people who have written books that are not very good, but they get all sorts of speaking opportunities because just because of the title of the book. I know that people aren't reading the book because if they read the book, they wouldn't bring this in, guy in as a speaker. <laughs> but it's just the title of the book is almost all it takes. It's just this marketing piece. So there's a lot of value there. Now, I don't advocate that you go out and write a bad book, right? Go out and write a great book because you'll have so much more rewards that come from that. Plus, then it's actually worth people reading. Yeah. But there's so many benefits that come from just having a book in terms of building your brand and people thinking that you're an expert just because you have a book with your cover on it. I mean, it's kind of like having a business card and putting CEO on it. It's like anybody can go print a business card and put the letter CEO on it. And yet somehow that gives you credibility. It's the same thing with a book. Like anybody can go publish a book and put their name on it. And there's great credibility that comes from it. So take that into account when you're thinking about building your personal brand, like just put it on as a to-do item that I've got to get a book out there for nothing else but building my personal brand. But then on top of that, also go out and write an awesome book that actually helps people and that people want to read and that gets spread around. Well, thanks for that insight. I, I do have a book that, well, I have two actually under the works. One's with a, an agency right now uh, that's supposed to be going out this year at some point, but that timeline keeps getting stretched out. So we'll see. Yeah, it's tough. It. I mean, my book uh, came out, I think, seven or eight months after it was supposed to come out. I definitely know how that goes. <laughs> well, Josh, I, I don't. Uh, I know you've got a timeline here, um, but I have one more question that I want to explore, and then uh, and then we can wrap up. Sound good? Sure thing. Okay, so um, one of the things we talked about was uh, we spent quite a bit of time on was this idea of how your pride had gotten in the way of making some really good decisions, um, and how you were able to overcome that. Um, but you also mentioned that it's not something that, that is gone, that you are constantly, um, needing to revisit that and kind of get your pride in check in order to make the right kind of decisions. So how do you improve that process moving forward so that you can get your pride in check sooner? You can recognize when it's driving decisions versus when your long-term intentions are driving decisions. How do you improve on that process moving forward? It's gratitude. It's all about gratitude. It's, I mean, humility is not the type of thing that you can focus on. It's not like you can put humility up as a metric and say, I'm going to measure my humility and then I'm going to make sure that my humility is at the right levels or something because humility is the thing that once you say that you've got it, then you don't have it, right? <laughs> yeah. So gratitude is the key because if you're grateful, then you're recognizing all the other people that have helped you, all the other factors that went into where you're at, and then humility sneaks in the back door. And so when I'm trying to keep my ego in check, if I feel like I'm getting into this uncomfortable area where I feel like maybe my ego is getting in the way, I just start thinking about all the people who have helped me, all the people who have made a difference, and I start giving them credit publicly and saying, you know, I mean, like my business, I talk about Corey Blake, my partner and everything that he's done and Curtis and all the other people that are so great in the company and all that they've done. And I just try to deflect things to them. And with uh, my new business, Influencer Inc. that I'm running that helps people become thought leaders, I talk about my partner, Rob and Robin, who's working with us. And I try to deflect that stuff to them and say, you know, look what they're doing and how they're building this business and how much help they're providing and I do this internally. I also do it publicly. And the more I express gratitude uh, within my own mind and also publicly, it just helps me to keep that ego in check. 
And I'm a lot happier that way too. It just makes me feel better about myself. When I talk about myself, I get really uncomfortable and I start feeling like, uh oh, am I sounding like that guy who's always talking about himself? It's a tough balance because I work in the space of personal branding now. I help people become thought leaders. And so I have to do these things and I have to be an example and I have to go out and write and speak and do this stuff and promote myself. And I don't like promoting myself, but I have to do it. And so I just remind myself like, hey, I'm here, but this isn't all me. There's so many people who helped me get to where I am and I can't take credit for everything. And I don't want to take credit for anything. I'd prefer to deflect it. That doesn't mean I'm not still a thought leader, influencer, or whatever. Um, but it means that I'm just giving credit where credit's due. And anyway, that's how I try to keep my ego in check. Awesome. Well, I think that's great advice for anybody who's uh, facing something similar. Um, you know, gratitude can be a precursor to a lot of things, and one of them is overcoming that tendency to. Uh, to take credit for too many things and to get too focused on self. Uh, so that's an ironic uh, segue into the the last piece. If people want to kind of follow your journey, they want to connect with you, they want to see what you're doing, where can they find you? JoshStimley.com and it's S-T-E-I-M-L-E. All right. Fantastic. So we'll direct people to joshsteinley.com if you want to follow Josh's journey or learn, learn more about becoming an influencer yourself. Uh, a couple of key takeaways here for me. Um, <clears throat> don't let it be four years uh, that pride is driving your decisions. Um, do as Josh says, spend time uh, focusing on gratitude, giving credit where credit is due uh, so that you can make those decisions that really lead you toward your goals uh, in a quick fashion versus taking a lifetime to get there. Josh, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Kyle, for having me. All right. Thanks so much, listeners. We'll talk to you on the next episode.